the business use case, right? Framing the problem, I think, is 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 worth uh, mentioning. is is one of the, is the most important piece because it is is it it is also worth mentioning that you know machine learning in its sense isn't isn't for every problem. A lot of people have this misguided notion that once you build a model, it lasts forever. But every model that you build has a lifetime, and that lifetime is dependent upon the data and your historic data that you have. Data. Why does it always seem to come back to data? Now, in this week's episode of Clown Talk, I spent some time with Ryan Reese and Mark McQuaid, the two gentlemen you just heard. And it turns out they worked on some really interesting projects around data and machine learning. Now, as it turns out, they built a predictive model for COVID-19 that outperformed that of the CDC. Well, before I give too much of their story away, let's jump into this week's episode. As always, stick around after the interview for some important information, as well as a preview into next week's episode. Now, while you're listening to this week's episode, make sure you hit subscribe for Cloud Talk in your favorite podcasting app of choice. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. So I'm joined today, of course, by Mark McQuaid and Ryan Reese. Now, Mark, he's the practice manager for data science and engineering, and Ryan, senior director of data science and engineering. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. So glad you're here. Jeff, thanks for having us. We really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, yeah. Now, we could joke and say that the data said you would be here, but that's only if it was formulated correctly and it would it would tell the future of when we would be together, right? Well, you'd really predict that we would have been here. For, you know, It would be how good is your model on predicting that? Oh, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little. Now, um, you know, when we were doing some prep work for this and in other episodes, I've joked that in the past uh, that um, that data doesn't lie but data analysts do. Now, while that's funny, it's only partly true because data quality really matters. And if you haven't got great data, you're going to be looking at bad stuff. If you don't have a great model, you're not going to be able to make correct assessments. Now, of course, people can still do bad things with that. But what matters is the whole process in dealing with it. But but you know, not everybody understands what data science really is or what a data science project really, really even is. So I thought before we dug into this whole topic of using data to help companies make fact-based decisions of reopening their closed offices, that perhaps we should really frame that out and what it means. So maybe Ryan, we'll start with you. And then Mark, if you've got any color, we'll, we'll go over to you to, to add in. Yeah, Jeff, great question, right? I think the, the biggest part that always comes up in a data science project is always right at the beginning where we spend several weeks, you know, one, two, three weeks, depending on the complexity of data, digging into that data, understanding the data, understanding what it's telling us, figuring out what kind of outliers you have, you know, seeing the trends that exist in that data and really determining, okay, does, is the data that I have going to give me any kind of predictive value or forecasting value, or if you're doing a recommendation engine, are there classes that come together that that are going to let me recommend what you're looking for? So that's really the the first bits. And it's often really interesting when we get in, you know, as a consulting firm, we talk to a lot of customers and they believe their business runs a certain way. And we'll take that belief, right? And we won't use it as truth to start with. We'll be like, okay, they think their business runs this way. We'll get in, we'll start looking at the data, we'll start understanding the data. And many times 
you get to this point and, you know, we're interacting heavily with the customer and you get to the point where you're like, okay, here's what your data is telling me. And it's very different than what you say your company's business model is. And so that, that's always a, a real interesting conversation, but the people go back and look at it and they're like, you know, you're right. Our business really does run differently than we thought. And that can often change how a project runs, but it's still, you know, you start there, clean the data, understand the data. Then the next step is, okay, I have a good understanding of the data. Now I'm going to start to figure out what model I'm going to use, right? If I'm doing something that's, that's predictive, you know, I might use XGBoost, which is you know, very popular. You can use linear regression inside XGBoost. It had a lot of success with that model. It might be classification, right? Somebody wants to classify, you know, different groups or, you know, what's important. Or it could be, you know, recommendation engines. You know, a lot of people obviously are involved and see recommendation engines out there every day or NLP. So then you build the model and then you test and validate that model. Is it working on my data set? And then you always hold some of your data out, right? And you, mm-hmm. and that's what you go back and test on. Okay, I've built this model. I've trained it. I validate it. Now I go back to my holdout set and does it actually perform on data it's never seen before? And sometimes it works great. Sometimes it totally fails. And you go back to the drawing board, figure out, you know, how do I retrain my model? Did my data actually represent what my full data set is, right? That's when some people start talking about bias in the data, because you want to have a data set that is reflective of your overall data. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of problems because your model is going to only see one type of data and then it's going to fail to predict on the rest of the data. So it's really key when you're looking at that data set to get it, you know, kind of a universal set of what you're, you're going after um, in your predictive model. And then once you feel you have a pretty good model, then you start doing what's called hyperparameter optimization. And that's where you start tweaking the model to increase your, your accuracy, right? You know, often your first models before you do hyperparameter tuning, you know, will be 75, 80%. And you start tweaking them to try to get over 90%. Um, so you really have that success for a customer. But with the ultimate goal being that that, that model that you create and, and Mark be thinking, I need to, a clear definition on what a model actually is in layman's terms because uh, our audience are not data scientists. But, but that model, the goal then is that construct is able to, like you said, look at data that it hasn't seen before and get consistent outputs with what you understand the business to be. Yeah, and, and and that's a that's a great point, right? And and I'll just uh, you know speak a little bit to the front of that, right? Um, the the business use case, right? Framing the problem, I think, is 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 mm-hmm. worth uh, mentioning. Is is one of the, is the most important piece because it is is it it is also worth mentioning that you know machine learning in its sense isn't isn't for every problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you know you have to frame that business use case and business problem and what the, what value you're going to get out of it if you're going to start getting into doing predictions and forecasting as well, right? Um, and and something else I wanted to mention as well is that you know when you're dealing with machine learning, uh, a lot of times you start and you, you build this model, as you'd mentioned, Jeff, and, and further to what that means is you're using machine learning, you're using an algorithm, and you're building a model um, that's going to do something you want, right? It's going to predict okay. something, it's going to forecast something, and that's going to be based on historical past data, okay? So you're, tr- you're training a computer to learn from, from its past behavior, its past data. Okay. Um, but it's worth mentioning that, you know, taking a machine learning model to production um, is is actually extremely hard right to get that into production to get that value that you you know you had 
wanted to get out of your uh, machine learning when you decided to use machine learning in the first place, really, right? Um, and a lot of, I think it's 60% of all machine learning models never actually make it into production. Uh, so, you know, you spend a lot of time as a business, you know, developing this great machine learning model and then, you know what, it just sits there in a dev account, right? So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So that, that's definitely worth mentioning as well. So, and a very simple example that I saw somebody demonstrate uh, that he had done on his spare time. This gentleman lived in uh, the California area, in a somewhat rural area, had a garden, and uh, and was had, had built this garden, had, had dug this garden up, and planted it with his young son. Uh, but the problem was the deer kept coming in. So what they did was they created a loud sound that would scare the deer away. So what they did was they got a built an operational model that took that went off a webcam to recognize a deer. And so what they had to do was get is is get just tons and tons of pictures and identify what is the deer in this picture. And then ultimately this model was able to recognize a deer in a photo. And so the camera would take a picture once every 30 seconds. If there was a deer in it, it made a loud sound and flashed a light and scared the deer away. Very simple example. But would that be a good example of what training a model might be in a very linear fashion? Yeah, exactly. You're using data that, you know, from the past, you're gathering a whole bunch of images of deers um, and you're going to train a model, right, to teach the computer program to know what a deer actually is. And then it's going to be able to predict, uh, you know, on future images of deer uh, from that camera. Uh, and it's going to be able to react accordingly. And I think something that was really important in the way you described that problem, Jeff, is, is also the time component, right? The amount of data that you see and that timing is, is very important, especially when you're doing computer vision, right? With computer vision, if you're taking too much imagery, you're, you're going to be blowing your bandwidth, right? You're going to be blowing out your storage, and you're also not going to be able to compute that without having you know, a lot of supercomputers. It's interesting when you look at computer vision, because I've worked in computer vision for a long time, a lot of people are still just using little teeny squares to do their mm. computer vision so that they can process fast enough. So even though we have all these fancy 4K cameras and all that, if you look at a computer vision algorithm, often these guys are, are still using quarter VGA. You know, it's pretty pretty shocking when you see what's going on in the field. But it's still sharp enough to uh, for the model to recognize what it needs to recognize and ultimately then make a decision. Correct. And so, you know, you really tease out an interesting point, and that is how to deal with with larger amounts of data in the context of, you know, looking for a deer or computer vision. Um, the 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 size of that picture matters. How often it gets taken matters. Uh, all of these are things that have to be taken into account. If we break that down, you know, defining the problem, like you said, uh, Mark, you know, in this case, I want my carrots to grow and I don't want the deer to eat them. Um, so how often do we actually have to do something? And then how do we go back and look at the pictures that weren't identified as a deer that may have been? If we are taking, you know, live, you know, 4K video at, at uh, 60 frames a second, that's a whole lot of frames to look through to find the, the ones that broke. But if we're looking at it every 30 seconds, every minute, every five minutes, then that may be enough. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's all about, uh, you know, especially for, for a specific problem that, that you had mentioned there with the deer, you have to, you know, weigh a lot of things in that, right? You'd have to weigh, you know, is it worth the time and effort and, and, and you know, money you would be putting into something like that um, to, to do that? prediction right and, and in that case obviously that that person felt that, you know it was good to go right they were <laughs> it was yeah. worth doing to save his carrots so yeah for sure exactly all right so now let's make the big jump so we go from saving the carrot patch to when is it a safe time 
to open an office post-COVID. Now that brings in all sorts of ramifications. Now, anytime anybody mentions data or mentions COVID, we know that that is a very charged conversation. So listener, don't worry. We are talking about the mechanics here. We are talking about ways to empower yourselves to make an educated decision, which is ultimately what a data science project is really focused on. So nope, there's a politics-free zone, but it is a technology-charged area. So let's talk about that a little bit. In fact, you guys approached us to have this conversation. Why is it important to you um, to, to work on this? And do you have any experience? Have you been building some models and some things in this space? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a super hot topic, right? I mean, you're seeing what's going on um, out in the world today. College football from the Pac-12 and the Big 12 just got canceled. Um, and so it's it's everyone's concerned. And, you know, I think the big thing about COVID-19 is we don't know the long-lasting effects, right? Most people from the flu or the cold recover and have no ill effect. But it seems with COVID-19, you may have lingering lifetime effects, which has made this all the more deadly of a pandemic. And so people are just scared, right? They're, they're worried about going into an office. They're worried about even going to the grocery store to pick up groceries. So, you know, how do you convince them that it's going to be safe? And it, it comes down to data, right? Showing them as, that you as a company care about them and looking at, you know, what is the virus load basically in my area that supports this office? And so we've been working with several companies and with AWS is forecast, which has a deep AR algorithm to determine on a county-wide level what is you know the, the forecasted trend going to be over the next couple of weeks or even the next you know month and you can then start to look right is is my forecast going down are my probabilities low is it safe for these employees to come to the office and along with that when you're in the office you have to make sure you're looking at how am i going to do contact tracing so we've been working with a company out of Canada that does safety devices called Blackline Safety, who have built in with our help a contact tracing solution so that if you're wearing these devices, they can tell like this guy just got COVID over the last, you know, he was just diagnosed with COVID. We want to go back several days, see who all he interacted with, and then notify that group of people that, hey, we need to quarantine for the next two weeks to make sure you don't have symptoms that you could potentially pass. To other people. So it's really a dual effect where you have to look at how safe is the area as well as keeping, you know, a contact tracing solution in place so that you can monitor and maintain the health of the people that come to your facility. Got it. So you've really touched on two, two things. So you've talked about how does a business make a decision in a microcosm fashion, uh, which offices should be open, which counties from which you know, people from which counties around their office should be able to come in. Uh, and that, of course, a data science project. But Jenny, you've also talked about a data collection and decision project around the contact tracing. So let's let's pivot first and really primarily over to making a decision around um, around one, when to open an office at large, and then who should be allowed to come into that. So let's talk about data sets. Let's talk about cleaning those. Let's talk about uh, building a predictive model around not just, you know, what's the state of the state today, but what's happening in, uh, uh, in the coming weeks or can be forecasted for the coming weeks. Yeah, and uh, um, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we, we recently did a, a project and engagement for uh, a group called Plan for Co, who were based out of uh, Southern California. Uh, they were affiliated with uh, UC Irvine, a big school out there. Um, and we were able to uh, do some, some forecasting 
time series forecasting for COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths in the New York state and the mm-hmm. New York state and, and even at the county level. Um, so, you know, I think one of the big issues out there today is the fact that there's so much information uh, misinformation, right? I mean, you know, from from the media, from social media, from all these sources. Um, and the one thing that I think you should and can rely on would be the actual data, right? right. Um, so, so what we did there is we 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 took a bunch of publicly available data, right? And that was extending from you know popular data sets like John, the John Hopkins data, uh, the IHME data, um, some Google Mobility data, right? And we were able to uh, you know pick out specific features uh, from that data that would uh, be able to forecast the, the, the prediction better, right? Yeah. So uh, instead of just grabbing you know, whole data sets and kind of merging them all together, we went through, we picked, up, picked them apart with the, uh, the most important features. Uh, and then we were able to, you know, as Ryan mentioned, uh, run them through uh, AWS and the forecast service. That's a, an AI service in Amazon. And we were able to then use uh, deep learning. We were using the deep AR algorithm under the hood um, to provide these forecasts in the New York state and county areas uh, based on, you know, two, three, four weeks out. Um, And we were very successful at it, actually. We were actually, we actually outperformed the IHME data, which is actually very well known in the U.S. um, and is referenced a lot. We outperformed that uh, for our our forecasts in the New York state area. So now, so that's incredible. So um, in that, is that data that's now being actioned against? Or are they are they adopting that as a standard? Or are they are they looking at that as how you guys accomplished it so they can look wider? What's the ramifications of of the use of that data? So the, the, that group there is taking is trying to take this uh, now to a next phase, right? They're trying to take it, you know, out of New York State and go, you know, uh, countrywide. So um, that's what they're trying to work on, and they're also trying to uh, merge in some contact tracing. You know, so further to what Ryan said, we've done that with another client, but they want to do it kind of a two pronged approach, right? So let's for let's you know let's build some forecasting, some reliable forecasting that people can actually believe because the data is real, and then let's start looking at building a, a contact tracing app as well. So they're they're still kind of in the infancy of what they're doing, okay. but you know the, their their results were 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 extremely uh, well received. And obviously, as I said, we, we outperformed the IHME data set, uh, predictions and forecasts. So, um, yeah, they're just trying to take that to the next level now at this point. Got it. And everything that you're doing, you're doing with public data sets. Absolutely. Nothing, nothing behind the scenes. Anybody with a data science background and understanding could use these tools because they're readily available from a hyperscale cloud perspective as well as the data set. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, with the readily available data, you still need to look at it and clean it, right? Because it's not necessarily the cleanest data set and you have to make sure you're you're spending time at the beginning to clean that up. Okay, so so walk through that process because it's one thing to say clean the data set, but it's another to understand what that means. Because while we're talking about uh, COVID data right now, it could be uh, customer data. It could be anything inside of an organization. How do we, how do, what's the process by which you go through and clean or sanitize or prepare that data for ingestion or, or consumption uh, that makes it have value? Yeah, I mean, that's actually, you know, 80% of, of, of the job of a, of a data scientist is, is you know, from, from doing that pipeline is, is in data cleansing, right? That is where the time and effort is put into. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, 
what you have to do is you have to find the data, you know, first off, reliable data, uh, honest data, if I can use that word. Um, and then, you know, what you have to do at that point is you have to clean it. You have to, you know, get it in a working fashion that will be able to be ingested into your, you know, machine learning model mm -hmm. um, in an appropriate way. Uh, so this could be, you know, when I say cleansing, that's a pretty broad topic, but that could be, you know, specifically in the, it, with the plan for Cohen UC Irvine case, it was grabbing a bunch of data sets, right? And then, you know, performing some kind of enrichment, right? As we say, enriching that data. Mm -hmm. So making it cleaner, you know, chopping pieces out of the data, merging data sets together, doing the joins, right? And, and only being left with the clean, accurate uh, pieces of data that are actually going to bring value, right? They're not actually, they're not just, it's not a, a column in a data set that, that's just sitting there with no value, right? So that's, and as I said, that's kind of the most time consuming and important piece to, to it. Okay. So that's really um, super helpful because it's, when we talk about cleaning data, I always think of cleaning in the most broad term as I'm going to take the stuff off the wall I don't want there so I can only see the wall. But in this scenario, it's not just about how do I remove things that are a distraction, but how do I join together additional data to give the, the core data that I'm looking at greater value and greater resiliency. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's so, exactly it. Yeah, and I think the big thing as well when you're cleaning data is you're looking at what are the outliers here, right? What is caught, you know, do I have sometimes with time series data, especially right now, when you look at some of the streams that are coming in, you have, you have to be really careful because there's a lag in reporting, right? There's a lag in the amount of testing or the testing time per state. And so you have to make sure you understand some of those bits so that you can feel that you're getting an accurate model at the end of the day, because, you know, not every state's going to have the same model because they're not doing the same amount of testing or the same coverage of testing, or it may take longer when you look at it, right? Some places we're doing testing and getting results back in a day, while other places it's five days later. So you, you really have to take all that into account when you're looking at your models. And so one thing that you said earlier is really starting to resonate now, and that is the fact that in this type of a thing, we're creating a predictive model. What could happen in the future based on based on a known things that have happened from now to anything farther in the past? And so then the value is as you as you take the time to create the model, clean the data, or create a way that ought to, that in the pipeline cleans that data as you ingest new data, that you can now apply new sets of data. So we create this thing last week. There's been a whole week between yes, last week and this week. We can now add that in. What has happened to our predictive model? Um, what can we start to expect? And so now you start to have this working engine that can now accurately start to forecast the future with the data science scientist's job to continue to refine the quality of the data, to refine the quality of the model. I think you're touching on something that's really important that we didn't talk about at the beginning is a lot of people have this misguided notion that once you build a model, it lasts forever. But every model that you build has a lifetime, and that lifetime is dependent upon the data and your historic data that you have, right? You know, so some areas might have a really long lifetime, and you can build the model, and maybe I've got to train it once a year just on on whatever new things have happened. Other models, it might be, hey, I got to retrain it once a month. Um, some other models once a week, or in, in some cases, people are even training them once a day or, or even quicker because the, the environment that that model is predicting is changing so quickly and rapidly. And I think in the, in the COVID case, you, know, you, you probably have only a couple of days 
where they're, you know, things are changing so rapidly that your model needs to be retrained every couple of days to see what that new forecast is. And so that's one of the hard parts, right, is that you're constantly training these models and it's constantly changing because of the updating information that you're getting, right? A new hotspot breaks out and suddenly you've got a bunch of new data in the region that you didn't expect and you need to model, okay, what's going on in that region that hit this hotspot. Yeah, because if you're a, cons- uh, a multinational consumer goods company who's trying to track the trends in sales of toothpaste globally, you're not a lot of retraining going on because not a lot is changing in health habits or consumption patterns. But in the context of this, the time to get a, a test pack, the amount of people who are getting tests, the uh, or even uh, you know when and should or the the virus itself mutate. I mean, there's so many variables here that I think would impact that model. Yeah, absolutely. So knowing that about your model is really important to understanding that model lifetime. Okay, so let's draw all this back. You're, we're, we're, this podcast is generally listened to by IT decision makers all around the world. And so how can they use data like this um, that they have access to or what, pro- what would they do to help ensure safe openings of businesses and, and how, would, how would they go through that process? Yeah, I mean, I think the key to, to doing that is you know, being ready to be data focused, looking at, you know, should I be building my own models? Should I use an outside consulting firm to come help set up that infrastructure that has experience in this area? And just looking at, you know, on a more granular county level per or county versus or city level, um, what's going on in that area? Do I feel safe to bring in? the people and then from that having you know the right checks in place right looking at contact tracing i think contract mm-hmm. tracing is a very important piece of this puzzle of opening up offices i mean that's one of the reasons why you know new zealand and some, some of the other countries in the east have been so successful is that they've done a huge amount of contact tracing right the minute there's a little pod that breaks out of infections they look at it they find all the people involved in and quarantine it and try to, you know, just hold it in place as quickly as possible. And that way it can't spread. I mean, the, the problem is you have so many um, asymptomatic spreaders. And so without mm-hmm. the contact tracing, you're just not going to be able to capture those people because they just don't present any symptoms. So it's really important for both pieces, right? What's my virus load in the area, which is some kind of forecasting model that you use, and then dealing with the contact tracing if something were to happen, um, you know, in the facility. Well, and then I'm going to go back and, and Mark, go to you on this is something you brought up as we were preparing for this. And that is in the models that you created, there's now some, some, a little bit of a question mark, just because one of your sources of data from the CDC pers- angle here in the U.S., you know, not that data is not going directly to the CDC anymore. So openness of data is super important. So I would say that as companies create their own models or their own databases from the uh, in the contact tracing standpoint, to be open with that data. Of course, it's about the PII, but uh, as much as they can to to give other folks access to that, that they help them in making their decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, we're all in this together, really, right? I mean, this is a global pandemic. So, um, I mean, I think that the more uh, you know, people are open with their data and able to share that data. Of course, as you mentioned, PII and stuff, you know, obviously scrub that. But um, yeah, I mean, that all that does is help others, right? Uh, helps others be able to, you know, perform any kind of predictions or forecasting for themselves, right? In their county or in their area of business, right? Um, and I think that when it comes down to 
um, you know, when you're when you're looking at it, right? You know, say building a, a time series forecasting model, you know, it isn't easy. It isn't easy. So you, you definitely need some kind of expertise, whether that's in-house or out of house, right? Like it's not a simple thing to accomplish. But once you get there, I think the key for businesses is to lean on and rely on that data as much as possible without you know looking outside at other at other sources of information yeah. right and and when you're doing that and you're sitting at a round table and you're saying when should we open you know and you're a bunch of executives and you're sitting there use the data as your as your starting point don't don't you know say well you know i saw this on the news and i heard this it should always be on the data and that should be your your actual you know decision making point to reference to that's my opinion yeah, especially if you've gone to the point of having access to either either through direct hire or through contracting data scientists. I mean, you talk about one job title that is in the most demand globally today is is folks like yourselves who have walked this world and understand what it's like to make intelligent future decisions based on past data sets. Uh, incredible. So uh, Ryan and Mark, really thankful that you guys were on today. This is really interesting information. Uh, feels like this is the kind of thing we should come back and address in the future and talk about how uh, maybe this project uh, out of Southern California for New York State is going. Um, talk about other ways that you've used data to help individual organizations or nation states make, make quality decisions. So thanks so much for being on the program today, gentlemen. This has been Absolutely. Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. I love examples of technology which have a very real impact on the day-to-day -day lives of so many people. And I'm glad we've got some good folks working on these issues. It sure seems like one of those areas of technology which could be used against us. Now, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you guys, but Rackspace has recently released some super interesting research around the significant impact that COVID-19 has had on the area of cloud spend and cloud optimization. In fact, I've written a research paper about those findings, which you can find over at solve.rackspace.com. Just head over there and check it out. Also, we're through two of our global roundtable events, but there are still three more to go this fall. You can find a registration link at that same site. Now, here's a little preview of what we have in store for you in our next episode. As I think back in the day when applications went through tons of cycles and from code complete to production could have been six months or a year, I think developers actually did take a bit less responsibility for things like, how do you configure this application in production? How do you scale it in production? How do you promote it between environments? And I think that's all front and center now when the line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. That's next time on Cloud Talk.